according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. This morning we are in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. In some ways, this whole hour will be our communion service. And what a blessing. I can't claim credit. I didn't plan it this way way back when we started the Isaiah series. But to arrive at Isaiah 53 on a communion Sunday, I think, is extra cool on our Lord's part. Let's open with a word of prayer and then uh, approach his truth for the blessings that he has for us today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for the precious promises. We thank you for the prophecies that your son accomplished in complete perfection. And Father, I ask as we study this day that you would open our eyes to see the, uh, the cross of Jesus Christ written 700 years beforehand and fulfilled so faithfully. Father, I just thank you for being faithful in opening our eyes to the scriptures. Might we be equipped, might we be fed, might we be transformed, might we be motivated, Father, to carry this gospel message. Uh, There's a lost and dying world out there, Father, that does not know the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. And I ask that we might be well equipped to communicate that message. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In reality, if I was in charge of chapterfication, I would have uh, dealt with this uh, and uh, included some of these earlier verses, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52, I think would have worked better uh, connected with the, uh, the message from chapter 53, but that's all right. We covered uh, those verses last week at the end of chapter 52, and we observed that this is the fourth of the, of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and it is the, the clearest of the gospel of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, as they point ahead to the person of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I'll just back up slightly. Chapter 52 and verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many people were, or as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. And so this is the opening verses of this fourth and final um, song of the servant. And that takes us into chapter 53. Uh, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It was not to the Gentile nations. It was to Israel, the Jewish nation. And so we'll start with this. We'll start with this uh, observation from verse 1. Unlike the Gentile nations, the Jews had Hebrew scriptures to identify their Messiah when he arrived. They had the Hebrew scriptures to identify their Messiah when he arrived. And we've seen many of these prophecies already in the book of Isaiah. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Okay, that's pretty precise. Uh, How many pregnant virgins have you ever met in your life? All right. But when the virgin conceives and bears a son and we have the exact location pinpointed elsewhere, uh, Micah, for example, pinpoints Bethlehem, we, we find the specificity of God's prophecies to be undeniable in their fulfillment. All right. Interestingly, um, even though he was sent to the Jewish people and they had every expectation of who he was going to be, the Jewish people rejected him. And that's the, uh, the tragedy of it all. Understand, Messiah was a Hebrew message. When you use the word Messiah, you are actually speaking Hebrew. The Mashiach is a Hebrew term for the anointed one. Messiah was a Hebrew message becoming the Christ message to the nations. And when you say Christ, you are now using Greek rather than Hebrew. And you are saying the very same thing you're saying, whether you're saying HaMashiach in Hebrew or where you're saying HaChristos in Greek. You are saying the Anointed One. The Anointed One. And that is the message of the Christ. He is anointed from His Father. 
the anointed prophet and priest and king, the faithful servant that came to accomplish everything that God the Father had for him to do. Technically speaking, Messiah does not mean Savior. All right, we use it that way. People use Messiah and Savior as if they're synonyms, but the vocabulary of Messiah does not have any recognition of, of salvation built in. All right, it is the anointed one. And he comes with the anointing of the Father to accomplish the Father's purpose, which just so happens to include our salvation. All right, and we can be thankful for that. On a personal basis, we have individual salvation by faith through Christ, but ultimately on a national basis as well. Israel will be ushered into their kingdom by the very same anointed one that, uh, that we call Jesus the Christ. So Messiah was a Hebrew message, becoming the Christ message to the nations. Revelation came to the Jews, and salvation is from the Jews. And we want to be very clear on this. This was a bit of a puzzle in the, in the uh, first century, and there were debates about this. But Revelation came to the Jews, Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 9. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's really simply introductory to the chapter. But Isaiah did ask, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? All right. In the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord was revealed to the Jewish people through the Hebrew Scriptures. Who believed that message? Not the Jewish people through the Hebrew Scriptures. All right. The nation rejected their Christ. And so now we have the unfolding of the plan for the church, while Israel is under a partial hardening. And so uh, this ought to be a refresher course if you were with us in our Roman series. But the uh, question is asked in Romans 3.1, what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision great in every respect? Had I been living in the 6th century BC, I would want to be a Jewish person in the land of Israel because they were the ones to whom the scriptures were revealed. Okay, My Germanic forefathers were still worshiping Odin and Thor and whatever their pagan gods and goddesses that they were worshiping and what have you. But salvation is from the Jews, and, the, and God himself revealed himself in the Hebrew language to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people. And so it says in Romans 3, 2, what advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God. Not just a holy text with rules of do's and don'ts and ways to make your God happy. The pagans had that. The oracles of God lay out the redemptive plan of the ages from Alpha to Omega, the outcalling of a holy people, the promise of a coming Messiah, and what he would achieve for the glory of God the Father. That comes through the Hebrew Scriptures and then ultimately into the Greek Scriptures of our New Testament. Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5 spells this out as well. If you've ever attended a church that buys into replacement theology, take them to this passage right here and show them that uh, they're serving Satan in their replacement theology. God is not done with Israel. But he talks about the sorrow that Paul, the Apostle Paul has for the Jewish people when he says in Romans 9.3, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And what a, uh, what a blessing. John chapter 4 and verse 22. Here's our Savior speaking to this Samaritan woman at the well. And she is so impressed to finally come face to face with a real prophet that she doesn't mind the fact that uh, he exposes all of her, uh, <laughs> her uh, sex life and all of her fornication with all the different men that she's not married to because she realizes, man, I am face-to-face with a prophet of the one true God, and she's going to have a chance to have her questions answered. And so immediately she wants to know. And she says in verse 25, she says, uh, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who am speaking to you, I am, or I am he. And he declares himself to be the Jewish Messiah uh, called Christ in the Greek. But prior to that, she was uh, trying to resolve the debate between Mount Gerizim and Mount Zion. 
And uh, the Samaritans, they wrote their own Pentateuch. They created their own holy place. They uh, created a, a, a holy center on the top of Mount Gerizim. And so when she says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And she wants to get this Jewish uh, Samaritan question resolved. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And here we have it in the church age where we don't have a, a holy mountain. We don't have a, a, a particular temple we must go to to approach the Shekinah glory of God. We ourselves are the temple being molded into that temple for the glory of Jesus Christ. He says, you worship what you do not know. You've got an ignorant worship, an agnostic worship, interestingly enough. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. They were the people given that message. And so who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Jewish people were given the message, but they did not believe it. The Jews actually had a tough time doing so, believing this message. We learn in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, He came to His own, and His own received Him not. The very people that should have been first in line to recognize, this is the Christ. All right. Now some did. John the Baptist had no problem with it. And there were a few. There's a remnant. But by and large, the nation did not. The religious leaders clearly did not. The, the political leaders did not. The tribal elders did not. As a nation, they rejected their Messiah. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son, who was with the Father for all eternity, came into the world to live among us. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. What a blessing. And of course, this is what we preach when we preach the gospel message. When you accept the gift of Jesus Christ on your behalf, when you apply faith to the promise, you receive the eternal life that He has promised. All right. Verses 2 and 3 then. This is the only place in the Bible where we have a personal description of the appearance of Jesus Christ. What did He look like? We've seen all the paintings, right? The long flowing hair and all the... Well, we don't know. We don't know about his haircut or hairstyle, whether he had a, a manly beard or he was clean-shaven or whatever else, all right? We don't know. The only description we have is that he was not impressive. This is the clearest narrative of his personal appearance. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. All right, he probably would not have done well in American politics. He doesn't, doesn't have that personal appearance, that television persona. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and one like from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. That's the personal appearance of our Savior as he's given here in the scriptures. He was not physically attractive. And if you want verses on this, there's no shortage of them. First Samuel 9 and verse 2, the King Saul was an attractive fellow. In fact, he was very handsome and he was tall, right? Tall, dark, and handsome. He was a head taller than anybody else in Israel. And everybody was all amazed. Hey, we're, we're going to get a king like the nations around us have a king. And Samuel said, what are you doing? You've got a God like the nations around you don't have. You don't need a king. Also in 1 Samuel 10, verses 23 and 24, also with reference to Samuel and how, or to uh, King Saul and uh, how physically attractive he was. And then at the uh, anointing of David, even there, even there, Samuel, who knew better, Samuel started to get um, kind of caught up in things because God sent Samuel to go anoint the, the king that was going to follow King Saul and even the prophet Samuel started to get disoriented when Eliab walked in. 
Are you familiar with this? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, uh, he shows up in Bethlehem and he goes to the house of Jesse and he says, I'm here. Uh, and um, he said, bring me your sons. And as soon as the firstborn son walked in, Samuel is all impressed. He, when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's Mashiach anointed is before him. That's got to be him. Look at him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you know, Samuel should have known that. I believe Samuel did know that back when when the Jews were picking Saul to be their first king. But here's Samuel now picking out their second king and he himself loses his objectivity in this. I think we all can. We better be cautious that we don't uh, lose our divine viewpoint and go back to uh, the elemental things of this world and start looking with external eyes at things. Second Samuel 14, verses 25 through 27, David's son, Absalom, uh, had the long flowing hair and all the, all the attractiveness that, uh, that uh, the women go for there. All right, not physically attractive. Our Savior did not have that. Our Savior was not impressing people with his looks. In fact, just the opposite. Described and forsaken, we're told. Remember, he even had the title, the forsaken one, the despised one. Back in chapter 49 of verse 7, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one. That's a title for the Christ. He is the despised one. The most hated human being in the history of planet Earth. And there he is, our Savior. Actually disfigured prior to his sacrificial work. That was last week in in 52.14. His appearance was marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of man. There has never been a human being that endured the disfigurement of what our Savior endured. At least according to the description there. And this took place prior to his sacrificial work. Okay, If you saw the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, and you saw vividly portrayed for you with Hollywood special effects, you saw meat ripped off the bone when the, when the whip hit his body. But that's not what saved you. All right? All of that was preparatory. All of that was humility testing. And Jesus Christ had to be the most humble man ever to walk this earth so that he would satisfy the justice of God in redeeming us absolutely necessary by his wounds we are healed because the wounds is what qualified him to lay down his life on the cross we'll see that here this morning and then a lot of people don't think about this but there's a curious reference in john chapter 8 and verse 57 in the gospels where he is described as not yet 50 years old not yet 50 years old all right, and that's kind of a passing comment. He said, you know, before Abraham was born, I am. And he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And of course, the Lord remembers Abraham from 2,000 years ago because he was there. But his critics are looking at him and saying, you're not yet 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? And it's almost just a throwaway sentence or a passing comment there in John chapter 8. But I got to thinking, that's kind of insulting and it's kind of a physical description of what a rough life he's lived. Because he's not even 40, right? I mean, when, however you do your chronology in the birth of Christ in 4 B.C. or 6 B.C. or 1 A.D. Or, or so forth. But in 33 A.D. when he dies on the cross, he's either 34, 36, or possibly 40 years old. He's pushing 40, but they say you're not yet 50, if you think about it, that's a bit of an insult. <laughs> if somebody in his 30s to say, you know, you're not 50 yet, are you? You just throw that extra decade in there. I suspect he had a rough life. I suspect when Joseph died that uh, as a teenager, I think, I think Jesus was left caring for Mary and caring for at least six siblings and, and working as a carpenter. And, and uh, I think he had a tough life. Anyway, that's just a clue things I think about. By the time we get to the book of Revelation, though, his hair has turned white. (laughs) And um, I understand what happens when your hair turns gray. Usually that's teenage daughters. But when your hair turns stark white, what's happening is Jesus Christ 
is being conformed to the image of the Ancient of Days, the vision of God the Father from Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10. And here too, I'm breezing through these early slides because I want to get to the later slides here this morning. But there is a change of appearance in Revelation chapter 1 when he is dressed with his priestly garments, when he is standing as the apostle and high priest of our confession, and his hair is white like wool. And we find a parallel there with Daniel chapter 7 and the vision of the Ancient of Days and uh, a, a uh, symbolic vision of God the Father that Daniel was able to see there. And so the older he gets, the more like the Father he becomes. Does that sound familiar? All right, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and we understand that he's taking us to the Father. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, he says. All right. The bulk of Isaiah 53 is centered on the uh, substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 4 and taking us through the end of the chapter, verses 4 through 12 now. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We have the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, and it's portrayed right here. And why it was that he died, why it was that he chose to be obedient to the Father and go to do this work that only he could do. And we have in this chapter of the Bible the clearest picture of our substitutionary, uh, the, the, the suffering servant and his substitutionary death. In fact, here's a title for it. I'm going to copyright this. The suffering servant's substitutionary sacrificial supremacy. His substitutionary sacrificial supremacy. Remember, if you want to be great, the key to greatness is humbling yourself. Not coming to be served, but to serve. And he kept trying to tell his disciples this again and again and again and again. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. He reaches to the supremacy, and this chapter describes it. He is given a name above every name. When you look to the end of this in verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. He has supremacy. He's being given a name above every name. It says in verse 10, He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in in his hand. Jesus Christ will have eternal supremacy because as the suffering servant, he humbled himself in a way that no other man could ever do. The God-man did what no man could do. And so I've titled this The Suffering Servant's Substitutionary Sacrificial Supremacy. And I'm going to define each of these terms for you. It's substitutionary because he took our place. We should have been there. All right? And it's, uh, of course, sacrificial because he didn't need it for himself. He himself had no sin. He needed no sacrifice for him to ascend into heaven and take his place in the perfection of glory. So it's substitutionary and it is sacrificial. Now, if you don't like the letter S, I have an alternative title for you. (laughs) The victimized vassals. Voluntary, vicarious victory. The voluntary, vicarious victory. And I kind of like that one better. You know, for about 10 weeks now, I've been going back and forth trying to figure out which one of these titles am I going to put on this slide? It's been, it's been rough. But it's been a rough 10 weeks trying to figure out which one I like better. Whatever it takes, though. Just remember, okay? He didn't have to, but he chose to. He chose to so that you and I could have eternal life. You know, Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than any other prophet being mentioned 21 times by name, countless other times without the name being mentioned. In fact, this chapter, Isaiah 53, is quoted or alluded to at least 85 times in the New Testament. So if I make a big deal out of this chapter this morning, I'm not the only one, okay? 
The New Testament makes a big deal out of this chapter. Isaiah 53 is quoted or alluded to at least 85 times in the New Testament. And uh, my reference for that is Bruce Wilkinson in his talk through the Bible. All right, it's in the introductory material to the book of Isaiah there. And, and things you might not even expect. Things like tender shoot from verse 2. Things like tender shoot in the Hebrew uh, give us the Natsar vocabulary of Nazarene. And we don't even realize when it says he shall be called a Nazarene that God would have him raised in a, in a tiny little place like Nazareth for him to take that label as a Nazarene and to fulfill the imagery of the branch, the imagery of the Natsar in Hebrew. So things like that that often uh, are missed and overlooked. And yet all these details are pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. There's no other fulfillment. History has not given us any fulfillment other than Jesus of Nazareth, the first century Galilean carpenter. Anybody comes along today and tries to say he's the Christ does not fulfill this chapter. Jesus did. Peter makes extensive use of this passage. I think this was his favorite passage. Is this song of the servant in such a vivid foreshadowing of the New Testament gospel message? In fact, this whole passage is, is taught in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. He changes the order up a bit. Take a look at this. You think this made an impact? Of course it did. He was there. He saw this. He had all this foolish bravado the night before where he said, oh, I'll never leave you. And he did. He denied him three times and he ran. First Peter chapter 2. And you'll notice verses 21. Oops, that's a bad reference. 21 through 25. Not 21 through 15. 21 through 25. And here's his message. He said, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The passion of the Christ is not only a nice thing to think about and to reflect upon. We're going to have communion today where we memorialize what he accomplished on our behalf, but it's more than that. It is an example for us to follow. We better be convicted to to take up our cross We better be motivated to serve our Father as Jesus served our Father. Who committed no sin, there was any deceit found in his mouth. All right, that's verse 9 from Isaiah 53. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's verse 7 of Isaiah 53. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. Alright, there's verse 4, there's verse 11. For you were continually straying like sheep. I tell you, (laughs) we all do. Here's verses 5 and 6. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The shepherd and guardian of your souls. See, when you truly understand shepherding, when you understand the value of a local church, the place of a shepherd in a local church, it's more than information, it's more than teaching, it's more than doctrine and content. It's the shepherding of the soul that takes place. We have the emphasis of it here. Yeah, Peter's not the only one. Like I say, much of the New Testament comes out of the recognition that Isaiah 53 was fulfilled perfectly, completely, and eternally by Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. That's why I think it proved so fruitful in Christian evangelism in the early centuries. I think it's why the the Jewish rabbis hate this passage so much, why they've revised some of the Hebrew text as they have why they have diminished the role of, uh, they've even, and, and what's amazing, some will even try to deny that this is messianic, and then they can't. And so then they try to waffle around it, say, well, it's messianic, but it's allegorical. It applies to Israel as a nation. Jewish people get mistreated. The, the, the Jewish people have been persecuted through the years. That's what this is talking about. All right? 
And they've been, they've been dodging it ever since uh, the Middle Ages. <laughs> All right? And typically speaking, it's not even really taught in the synagogues anyway. It's easy to avoid a chapter when you control what the readings are from month to month. All right. Let's understand the nature of this substitutionary death. It was our griefs that he himself bore, our sorrows he himself carried. He had none of his own, none that he earned and none that he deserved. The consequences for sin, all of it was our consequences, and yet he took it upon himself as the substitute. So much of this details the um, substitutionary vicarious death. Verses 4 through 6 substitutionary, vicarious, unlimited atonement is achieved by one widely accepted as God-forsaken. His reputation was that he was God-forsaken. We use that as an idiom, right? We talk about a God-forsaken place, a God-forsaken person, a God-forsaken job, (laughs) a God-forsaken child or whatever. We use use God-forsaken as an adjective and fail to realize there's a real significance to that. And uh, here he is. We view him as, for, as uh, stricken of God, smitten of God, and afflicted. You realize Jesus Christ was assigned guilt the way that Job was assigned guilt. What would you do, Job? You had this coming to you. All right. What'd you do, Jesus? You must have had this coming to you. If the Father really loved you, he would get you off that cross. He wouldn't have put you on that cross. The Father must not really love you. And you see all of the taunting and all of the mocking and derision by the the crowds around him at the cross, fulfilling prophecy. You know, Satan can't help himself. Even though he knows the Scriptures, he still, his agents end up fulfilling more prophecy than I'm sure Satan's happy about. And even Satan himself. You know, that when you start to wonder, how much did he know? Did he really realize what a big mistake this was? He thought it was a victory until a certain point when all of a sudden I think the light bulb came on. And I think for the first time ever it crossed his twisted satanic mind that this is not going to end well. <laughs> okay? Colossians tells us that. In the wisdom of God, I don't have a slide prepared for this, but in Colossians we're told, that the wisdom of God is wiser than the foolishness of the world and that the, the rulers of this age did not understand. That's Colossians chapter 2. And the, the rulers of this age did not understand. And if they would have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay? And that to me is huge. If they would have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So that tells me he didn't know what was going to happen, not until it was too late. So it's substitutionary, it's vicarious, it's unlimited. I want you to ask yourself here, if all of us like sheep have gone astray, that's unlimited atonement. Who hasn't gone astray? It says he was pierced. It says our griefs he himself bore. But it's not limited to only the redeemed. This passage doesn't limit the, the, uh, the sorrows. It's, uh, and clearly, if all is all, all of us like sheep have gone astray, that's not just believers. That's believers and unbelievers. That's everybody. That's total depravity. That's all humanity in a lost estate that requires the, the Redeemer. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's the payment price for our sins. It's substitutionary and it's vicarious. He took our place and we benefit from what he achieved. You understand when you get saved, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into union with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so you can ask yourself, where were you on Friday, April 3rd, 33 BC? I'm 33 AD. Where were you on Friday, April 3rd? between noon and 3 p.m., all right? You were in Christ. That happened retroactively when the God, the Holy Spirit, baptizes you into union with Christ. And it was death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session with God the Father. 
and yet he is esteemed as stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Well, he got what he had coming. He got what he deserved. No, he didn't. He got what we deserved. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The judicial imputation of our sin, God the Father credited to Jesus Christ's account every sin you've ever done, every sin I've ever done. The sin of the world, sins plural, sin singular, all dealt with at the cross. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It was judicially assigned to Jesus Christ. And thank God for it, right? Because uh, if, if it was left on a relative basis for bigger sinners to work harder to try to save themselves, how pathetic would that be? <laughs> okay? No, God judicially assigned the guilt of Adam to all of Adam's posterity so that he could judicially assign the righteousness of Christ to all of Christ's posterity. The first Adam is provided for by the last Adam. And here we have a, an exposition of a text that I believe defends unlimited atonement. Others would argue. All right. But he's widely accepted as God forsaken. Substitutionary vicarious unlimited atonement is achieved by one widely accepted as rightly executed. The rabbis tell you he should have been executed. It was a fair trial. He was guilty. He was a blasphemer. He made himself out to be God. And so he was rightly executed. Even though personally sinless. (laughs) They couldn't point to a single sin. All they could point to was blasphemy for claiming to be God. Not a single sin. You know, who... What, what pastor is there? What ministry is there if, if somebody's spying on you 24 hours a day for three and a half years? Is it going to find some kind of a sin? All right. Because every pastor is not sinless, right? Every pastor, we all stumble in many ways. And yet, no matter what they could do with all of their spies and all of their lies and everything else, they observed not one personal sin. So we have it described here in verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And take the time, we did this in our Life of Christ series, take the time to go through his different trials. The early trial before the high priest, the later trial before Pilate, the other trial before Herod, and then he was sent back to the second time to Pilate. Four different hearings that he had, you know, in the dark of night and then in the light of day and, and everything else. And there were places where he was absolutely silent. He kept his mouth shut. He's fulfilling this verse. All right. And uh, you wonder, I wonder sometimes, what the anguish of his soul was like. Because he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. What happens if you cry out in anguish? What happens if he cries out in anguish? Okay, the one who speaks in the universe springs into being. You know, we, we, we can shout a, a careless word. I can, I mean, I can, I can curse in carnality. I can say, you know, I can hit my hammer with uh, my hammer with a thumb. I can hit my thumb with a hammer and I can say something ugly, but the power of my words doesn't make it happen. But when Yahweh Elohim speaks, it happens. Okay. And can you imagine a careless word? under this anguish and this agony? You know, man, how, how frightening is this? Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, now consider the very generation that he lived in. We're talking first century Jerusalem. The ones who nailed him to the cross, what is their judgment going to be like? Well, they get it in 70 AD as the the Romans conquer. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. I mean, really, who should have been suffering? Not him. They should have been. You know, and yet what do they say? Pilate tried to release him. You ever read those trials? You ever study that? 
Pilate tried to release him. And they demanded a murderer instead. They wanted Barabbas instead. And he said, well, what shall I do with your, with your Messiah, with your Christ? They said, crucify him. He says, why? What has he done? They said, his guilt, his blood be on our heads and on our children's heads. How flagrant. How, how boastful. And out of their own mouths, they pronounce their own sentence because it happens. You can read Josephus. You can read the siege of Masada. You can read, oh my goodness, the inhuman suffering and treatment that, that they went through in the uh, Jewish war. The attempted Jewish rebellion against Rome. It did not end well. All right. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Remember, there were two thieves, one on either side. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea arrives and says, I've got a brand new tomb that's never before been used. And, and he requests permission from Pontius Pilate to bring the body down from the cross to anoint him with the costly uh, uh, oils and whatnot and to wrap him in linen, to lay him in the, in the tomb. In, in certain respects, verse 9 almost seems contradictory. Grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. It almost seems like a puzzle like, how can those both be true? They seem contradictory, but no. Our Father fulfills all of it. Because He has done no violence, nor was there any deceit in His mouth. So they regard Him as rightly executed, yet personally sinless. They could not name a single sin. He even taunted them at one point. I find it as a taunt. He says, uh, I've done many miracles. For which one of them are you stoning me? <laughs> And they said, we're not stoning you for a miracle. We're stoning you because you make yourself out to be God. Well, truth hurts, doesn't it? Okay. As, as we saw this morning, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? It's not blasphemy if it's true. He is God. And they should have known that. The, the Hebrew Messiah was very clearly Yahweh. It was Yahweh himself to come and redeem his people. It should have been not one bit of, of uh, blasphemy to understand that the Messiah, when he arrives, would be God himself, God with us, Emmanuel. Well, <laughs> you know, if they don't want to see it, they're not going to. That's the thing. Hardness of heart, an evil heart, won't see what it refuses to see. Substitutionary, vicarious, unlimited atonement will be eternally enjoyed by the one who provided it and the many who accepted it. Now we get from the unlimited to the particular, from the all to the many. This passage addresses both. But it starts with the one who provided it. It starts with Jesus Christ and His own personal enjoyment of what He achieved for the pleasure of God the Father. Do you think we take pleasure every time we take communion? Of course we do. But Jesus takes even more. Understand the value to Him, the reminder of His Father's faithfulness. Substitutionary, vicarious, unlimited atonement will be eternally enjoyed by the one who provided it and the many who accepted it. See, here's the thing. The many who do not accept it, they were still atoned. They were still paid for but they will have no enjoyment for all eternity. They will be in the lake of fire apart from His grace, apart from the glory of His presence. And so we have both the unlimited atonement and the particular application. Verses 10 through 12. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Abraham was willing to walk up the mountain with Isaac, but Isaac had to carry his own wood. Isaac had to be willing to go with his father up that mountain. The father was pleased to crush him if the son was volitionally willing to pay the price. Not only must he be volitionally willing to pay the price, he had to have the total understanding of what that price entails. An imperfect knowledge would disqualify his voluntary service. And I'm going to talk about that here uh, before we dismiss today. 
it's kind of, the, in my mind, it's kind of the biggest deal of this chapter is right here in verse 10. If he, God the Son, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, would render himself as the guilt offering. He is the priest, he is the offering. The altar is his soul and he's doing this work, laying down his spiritual life. But he has to do it voluntarily. And if he does so, then he will see offspring. There is glory on the other side. Satan tried to offer Jesus glory without the cross, saying, hey, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory. And it's an attempt to offer the crown without the cross, glory without suffering, a shortcut to good stuff. And hey, no pain, it doesn't hurt. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Got to obey my father. Worship him and him only. To try to attain the crown without the cross is is evil. The satanic shortcut. All right. So as a result, so here's what he will see. He will see his offspring, or he will see offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Apart from victory at the cross, the millennial and fullness of time blessings cannot be granted by God the Father. As a result, the consequence of this is so undeniable. As a result of the anguish of his soul. Now God the Father views the anguish of God the Son's soul. Jesus Christ's soul. As a result of the anguish of his soul. Why did he have to suffer before he suffered? Why did he have to suffer spiritually before he was qualified to go to the cross? Only then would the Father be satisfied. Only then is the Father content accepting the fact that Jesus Christ is fully aware of what this sacrifice means, of what it's going to cost, until he experiences this suffering. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Notice, it's not by his death on the cross. It's not by the blood that he shed. It's not by his separation from the Father. By his knowledge. Well, what did he learn in his sufferings? Okay, He learned through his sufferings. In fact, he had to suffer so that he could learn. The book of Hebrews teaches us this. That he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. You know, we talk a lot about Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. What happened Thursday night? They left the upper room. They walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. And with three of his disciples, he went in to pray and he sweat great drops of blood. Okay? Now we partake of the cup. We commemorate the blood. Can we expand our thinking beyond Friday and consider what he was doing on Thursday? Shortly before midnight, he sweat great drops of blood. And in that suffering, he went to his disciples and prayed, said, pray that you not enter into temptation for the, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it was in Gethsemane that he had the victory. It qualified him to go to Golgotha. And here's why. This is what pleases the Father. This is what provides for satisfaction. This is the why answer that we don't think of otherwise. Okay, You ever studied the doctrine of propitiation? You know that God the Father was satisfied with the work of Christ on the cross. That's propitiation. And He was satisfied. We know that He was satisfied. We're told in passage after passage after passage, the Son did the work and the Father is satisfied. But in all those passages you turn to, it doesn't say why the Father was satisfied. It just says that He was. Here we're told why. And we're told it was by virtue of the anguish to His soul and by His knowledge. It was critical for the justifier to be qualified to be the justifier. And this is what happens here. So as a result of the anguish of his soul and what Jesus Christ learns in Gethsemane, when, when, when our, when he, that's when he was crushed. When it says uh, he was crushed for our, he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities, verse 5. The piercing was with nails on the cross. The crushing, 
was in prayer the night before. The the totality of our guilt was made clear to him, and he accepted it. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, by what Jesus Christ learned in the Gethsemane sufferings. The Father was satisfied that Jesus Christ could go to the cross. And so he does so the next day. Gets arrested that night. Understand, here's why. Understand, here's why. Wake up. There we go. God the Father cannot be pleased by grudging or compelled service. This is absolutely true in any application you want to find. From from me being a pastor to you being whatever to anybody being whatever. All right? If your service is grudgingly or under compulsion, the money you put in the offering plate, if it's grudging or under compulsion, God doesn't want it. Your evangelism ministry, your whatever you're doing, it cannot be grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. If it's not free will, He doesn't want it. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, 2 Peter 5. Should have put verse 3 on there. Or 4. <laughs> Let me double check that. But 2 Corinthians 9, 7, not grudgingly or under compulsion. And compulsion is more than you think it is. Compulsion, by the way, can be through ignorance. I'm going to add to my slide right now. Live, right before your very eyes. We're going to add Philemon to the book to uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Because this is huge. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. See, if it's not grace, then God doesn't want it. God deals with us in grace. We have to deal in grace for all of our service, voluntarily according to the will of God. And here's the, here's the key. Compulsion can be effective compulsion if you're ignorant about something. And and. In uh, Philemon, the Apostle Paul tells him this. He says, without your consent, Philemon verse 14, without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Spend some time chewing on that this week. Because ignorance can be a problem. You may want to do something, but God says, you don't know all the facts yet. And I'm not going to accept your free will here because you don't know yet what I'm really asking. And because you are finite in your understanding, if I let you go on this basis, then your goodness will be in effect by compulsion. Because you didn't know any better. And if you'd have known more, you might not have done it. (laughs) Okay? And the Father doesn't want your goodness to be compromised by your ignorance. He doesn't want Philemon to do the right thing without knowing all the facts. That's huge. He doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross without knowing all the facts. Without, I'm not talking about his omniscience as God the Son, but his experience as the God-man in learning from his own volitional standpoint what it's going to cost him the next day. And he has to learn that. He has to acquire that knowledge. And how does he acquire that? Through his sufferings. So that his goodness is not by compulsion. Second Peter 5. And I, I knew I was going to do that too. I got in a hurry. I just put the chapter up and I said, I'll go back later and add the verse in there. It's either verse 4 or it's verse 5. It could be verse 3. And it's not Second Peter. It's First Peter. Second Peter only has three chapters. So it's a Peter thing. First Peter 5, 3. 2. Oh, man. See, Chuck Swindoll, he's got a staff that irons all this stuff out, and he looks real slick when he's on the radio. All right, First Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. God will reject that every time. But voluntarily according to the will of God. If it's free will, he'll take it. If it's compulsion, he doesn't want it. 
That's true for you. That's true for me. That's true for Peter. That's true for Paul. It's true for David. It's true for Jesus Christ. He went to the cross not because he had to, because the Father said, you must do this. He went to the cross because he wanted to. He knew that if he didn't, no one else could. And he chose to be obedient to the Father. So God the Father cannot be pleased by grudging or compelled service. This is why the Son had to learn. Jesus Christ was qualified. Now here's, I've got to close with this, and then we'll have our communion where all of this will be portrayed. Jesus Christ was qualified to be our substitute by virtue of his true humanity. Understand that the angel of the Lord couldn't die on the cross for our sins. The burning bush couldn't go to the cross. <laughs> the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night could not have the victory at Golgotha that our Savior had in his flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us because it's only by virtue of true humanity that Jesus Christ is qualified to be our substitute. He was qualified to be the sin offering by virtue of his sinless perfection. Had he had a sin, that's why our bread is unleavened, because he was without sin. He was qualified to be the sin offering by virtue of his sinless perfection. Even one sin would have disqualified him from being the sin offering. The lamb had to be without spot or blemish. One blemish and he's done. One blemish, then he needs a savior. And qualified to satisfy God the Father by the experiential knowledge he acquired through the anguish of his soul. The reason why he was a substitute was he was truly human. The reason why he was a qualified sin offering was because of his sinless humanity. But qualified to satisfy God the Father as a substitutionary vicarious sacrifice, eternally satisfying to the Father. Isaiah 53.10 tells us, by his knowledge, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Look, if the justifier is not qualified, we're not justified. He himself must be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Matthew 26.38, my soul is in despair to the point of death. And Peter, James, and John kept falling asleep. Matthew 26, 38. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Began to receive Isaiah 53, 10. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What was he struggling with? What was the victory here on this night? Isaiah 53.10 And he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter, You men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is him and his humanity wrestling with the will of his father. Went away a second time and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. He surrendered his will to the will of the father and said, Father, I will do this. He made the volitional choice, I want to do this. And he did. Father, I thank you for our Savior. I thank you for what he accomplished. I thank you for your plan, the only plan. Father, there are not many paths to truth. There are not many paths to heaven. There is one and only one. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name that has been given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And Father, I thank you for the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah 53. This uh, powerful prophecy was given 700 years before Christ and yet so vividly portrayed what our Savior accomplished on our behalf. 
I thank you for his faithfulness. I thank you for the blessing we have to commemorate that here today. Not only to commemorate it, but to um, proclaim it. To proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.